This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome back to Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom. I'm Bill Ayers, and I'm here with Light Eilee, Jordan Allen, and Roxana Espos, gathered in the spirit and the memory of Malik Alim for our seminar on freedom. That was Tom Morello, the dazzling artist and intrepid freedom fighter, getting us started. Tommy's an extraordinarily generous, inspiring person who shows up whenever and wherever people are coming together and rising up for peace and justice, for freedom. Tom has a recent book out called Whatever It Takes that tracks his lifelong mission as an artist and an activist. The book is both illuminating and inspiring, and I urge you to pick it up. TomMorelloBook.com. One word. TomMorelloBook.com. We're broadcasting from the traditional, unceded lands of the Potawatomi, the Ojibwe, and the Odawa, and we're transmitting, as always, on the Freedom Frequency, inviting you to join us as we look uneasily at the world we've inherited and struggle toward a world that could be or should be, but is not yet. We tune into first and fundamental questions. What is freedom? How do we get free? What are the freedom dreams that encourage us and drive us forward? Good questions for kids to think about. Good questions for all of us. Our first regular feature is a moment of Zen, the quiet contemplation of a poem. And today's poem is A Bed for the Night by Bertolt Brecht. I hear that in New York, at the corner of 26th Street and Broadway, a man stands every evening during the winter months and gets bed for the homeless there by appealing to passers-by. It won't change the world. It won't improve relations among men. It will not shorten the age of exploitation. But a few men have a bed for the night. For a night, the wind is kept from them. The snow meant for them falls on the roadway. Don't put down the book on reading this, man. A few people have a bed for the night. For a night, the wind is kept from them. The snow meant for them falls on the roadway. But it won't change the world. It won't improve relations among men. It will not shorten the age of exploitation. Our second regular feature is a free write, a time to release our imaginations and react extemporaneously, enabling unexpected and astonishing new winds to gather strength and blow us away. Here you can pause the podcast for just a few moments, or for as long as you like, and write wildly. No need for edits or revisions in response to this prompt. Agree or disagree, everyone deserves everything they need to live a healthy and dignified life explain. Start writing and we'll be right here when you return. Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel Under the Tree Podcast for clips and interviews and follow us on Instagram at Under the Tree Podcast. I'm going to leave you for a bit, Lighty, and go interview a colleague and comrade of mine from the University of Illinois at Chicago, the brilliant scholar-activist Stacy Sutton. 
Stacy's an associate professor in the Department of Urban Planning and Policy and director of applied research and strategic partnerships at USC's Social Justice Initiative. Professor Sutton works on a range of important issues, many of urgent and intense interest to me, including workers' cooperatives, the solidarity economy, gentrification and community renewal, and economic democracy. Stacey, thanks so much for being here. Oh, I'm thrilled. Thank you, Bill. It's, it's great to see you, and it's always a propitious moment, and this happens to be another one. But I guess I'd like to start by just asking you to talk a bit about what your work has turned to in these days. What are you focused on right now? I would say um, the majority of my work is in the area of cooperative economics, the solidarity economy. Uh, sometimes we talk about it as, uh, you know, economic democracy, community wealth building. All of them are synonyms for the same thing, more or less. And I, I guess to, to characterize it, it would be um, looking at the, I focus on the ways in which communities, primarily black, but also, uh, you know, brown, indigenous communities are kind of reclaiming both land and labor, right? So uh, labor, the, the economy is one space in which we have no uh, democracy, essentially, right? You go to work, you work for someone else, they set the terms. Uh, so the notion of economic democracy, to oversimplify it, is essentially the labor's controlling capital as opposed to capital controlling labor, right? Um, and so my work really looks at the different possibilities for that. Where, where do we see that emerging? Where, um, what, what's required? What is, what is the ecosystem that supports that? You know, we, worker cooperatives, that's a, that's a big element in it. So much of my work is in the U.S., but we learn from examples globally. So you say worker control or, you know, workers, workers' democracy having some control over the workplace in ways that kind of counter the power of capital. Yeah. Is it possible in, in a capitalist country to have that go on? How is it possible? Where do you see it? Yes, it's possible. But let me first say that you can't, I, and I say this often, you can't cooperate your way out of capitalism. Right. Right. But nevertheless, cooperatives are, worker-owned cooperatives especially, are a crucial kind of uh, organizational form because they they teach the worker owners you know a, a level of democracy a way in which we can engage with each other it's it's very much about relationships relational um, different governance structures and so forth right so the degree to which we then expand our notion of what's possible by by being an owner and a worker uh, I think it has kind of ripple effects that 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 um, can be revolutionary. We're not there yet, so we see them all over, though. We, so where, for example, in the U.S. So in Chicago, for instance, give me an example. A, a yeah. new one that emerged in Chicago is called Shy Fresh Kitchen. It is a worker-owned cooperative started in, in the early days of the pandemic, so about a year ago by five black formerly incarcerated women. Hmm. And they started it, it, it came out, of, so they weren't the only people that were starting it, but um, 
an organizer, a couple of organizers came together and said, you know, we can do this here in Chicago, right? Uh, they, because they were organizers and they had connections, they reached out to a set of folks and really explained what is, you know, did the cooperative 101 kind of conversation. And these five women were, were sold, you know, they, they didn't know anything about cooperatives, but they were interested in the notion of being owners and workers. And that's a, an especially important population, right? Because, you know, it's, it's like impossible to get a job when you, mm -hmm. when, when you come home. Um, and together, the, those, those, the folks that we call cooperative developers with um, the worker owners, they thought through what, what industry should we go into? And they went into food service. And so they make prepared meals for institutions, for hospitals, for schools, for the YMCA, and they sell them. The business model is food production, right? And they started in the hatchery. And just mm, three months ago, they bought their own building on the south side. Hmm. And just last month, they became profitable. And so a worker, the reason we talk, the reason that's an important model, not only are they setting the conditions of work and, and, and that's of all facets of, of the work, both production, um, human resources, uh, and where they're going to locate. But with worker owners, worker owned cooperatives, they actually share the surplus, share the dividend. So if once the business is profitable, they get to determine what to do with those profits. So not only do they have a salary, they get what we call the surplus, right? And then some of it they invest back in the enterprise. Okay, but but you said they did kind of co-op 101. Who did that for them? So there's a whole there's a whole um, ecosystem of, within the cooperative sphere. So here, uh, one of the people that does that work uh, and did that specifically, her name is Camille Kerr. And she started cooperatives in other places, and she moved to Chicago and really started doing that. But there are other, there are a lot of folks. I mean, I, I teach a class on how to do this. Okay. So it's, um, I think it's more prolific than folks understand. Okay. Some of them are very small, three-person uh, cleaning companies, let's say, or uh, land, we're working this summer to start a work cooperative for young people doing landscape landscaping and mm. um, the building, not the trade, but like um, home renovation. Okay. Right. Um, th th here, the New Era Windows is a cooperative. So you know that story, right? Uh, the, the one that came out of the strike? At yes, the, uh -huh. right. And then they formed a cooperative. Oh, I didn't realize and that. And they, they are still operational. They're, they're profitable. They're doing really well. Um, and so the process of getting there of, of, so there are different ways of, you can start a cooperative from, um, you know, from, from scratch, essentially, or you can convert an existing business. Mm. So workers can take over a business. We see that in Argentina. We see that in many places. And that example, it went through various, you know, uh, iterations, but the, 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 the model that works best for them has been this worker-owned cooperative. And what was the name of the windows? Uh, Republic Windows. Republic Windows. Yep. I remember this. And now it's called New Era Windows. I remember the struggle very well. James yep. Tendwa was deeply involved in okay. that. Yep. Yeah. Um, so, so it can start from scratch. It can convert from something else. And what I hear you saying is that part of the beauty of it is that it is consciousness building. It is building a sense of what's possible 
beyond kind of a competitive dog eat dog sell your labor um, world. Is that correct? Yes and no. In that these enterprises are, are within capitalism, so they're competing with other for new era is competing with other window manufacturers that are working within, you know, a capitalist model. Uh, so that that then informs their pricing structure and it informs a number of things. But what what would be I think important to hold is the conditions of work, right? And so if you look at another manufacturer, you have the owner on top and those that actually know how to make windows and they're mm -hmm. on the shop floor, they have very little power mm -hmm. in terms of the conditions of work. How many weeks off, how, how, uh, how childcare is going to happen, how the, you know, the, 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 the environment within the shop and so forth, right? They, they, they don't get to determine all of that. I see. And so newer windows, not they can determine all of that through consensus. It's it's a lot of meetings. Okay. <laughs> a lot, and that is part of what <clears throat> people learn to do. It's not just the business, but you learn a, a new governance model, a democratic governance structure. And so the democratic governance and the cooperation is. I'm going back to this question. That is kind of feeding into a consciousness that Absolutely. builds toward a sense of we could build a movement, we can yes. develop our own agency. Absolutely. Is that part of the that thinking? Is absolutely. Okay. But all cooperatives don't have a similar politic. They're not. So when I started, I said I work within the solidarity economy, I work economic democracy and so forth. So we can point to cooperatives in the U.S. that are not inherently political, right, in terms of the worker owners. But there is a huge movement um, and of of cooperatives that, and not just cooperatives, but other entities within the solidarity economy that are very much about a post-capitalist future, very much about a kind of a liberatory future, black liberatory future, indigenous liberatory. They're very much within the land back movements. Uh -huh. Yeah, and so the solidarity economy is a. I think a larger frame for understanding it because there are a set of practices and that's cooperatives. It could be public banks, uh, community land trusts. There are a set of things that, that we kind of put together that are under the rubric of the solidarity economy. Do you feel this movement is growing? Absolutely. It absolutely. Is. Yeah, absolutely growing. And, 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 you mentioned banks. Is South Shore Bank an example of that? No. Well, that's a community bank. Okay. Right. That's a community. A public. That's the only bank. one I know. No, so. but a public bank. We only have one in the United States. Is it, it in it, South Dakota? Yeah. That's. Is it South Dakota or North Dakota? One right? of the North Dakotas. Dakota. Yeah, one of the Dakotas. We, it's the only public bank. But the movement for public banks right now—they've passed legislation in New Jersey, in California, to start public banks. It was um, Amara Enya that was part of her campaign to start a public bank. Huh. Um, I didn't realize. There must be, oh, I'm just guessing, but I think there are, I'm just trying to think about the map, um, let's say seven, eight states that have legislation underway to start public banks. And, and why would the why, state oh, legislatures <laughs> allow that? Well, I mean, that's part of a movement, yeah. right? Um, because, because they realize how much it how expensive money is. And so if we take the example of Chicago, when Chicago wants to build a bridge or any infrastructure project, right, they go to a private bank and borrow for the bridge. If the bridge costs a billion to build, it will cost a billion and a half. 
Mm. On average, it's 40 to 50 percent above cost. And that's just convention, what the bank. So banks are making ridiculous amount of money. But imagine if we could take our tax dollars and put them in a public bank that would only charge 3 percent, you know, just essentially the cost of doing that business. We we, we could do away with so much of our debt. We could cover our pensions. But we right currently we do business with seven private banks. I'm talking just about Chicago. Seven of the large banks. All of our revenue goes to these seven banks. Wow. Imagine if we didn't Right. Use that, and we use it. Our public bank, North Dakota, was the only state when we went into the financial crisis, the only state that didn't have that recession. Really? Yeah. How did that happen? Because they didn't. They don't have. They they, they didn't have a housing crisis because the lo- the mortgages were not um, controlled by the private banks. When you look at that state, you see very few Chase, Citibank, and so they're community banks uh. and the big public bank. The big public bank is not where individuals to, uh, or individual depositories. Tax dollars go to the public bank. That public bank then helps subsidize a set of community banks that deal with individuals. Yeah, But the public bank typically deals with student loan debt. <laughs> it deals with, uh, you know, infrastructure projects and so forth. So these are these are models. My students often, they look just like you, like, what is this yeah. possible? Yeah. How is this possible? Right. Absolutely. Well, I, 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 at the risk of having a fairly dogmatic view of uh, the unbending evil of capitalism. Um, but but it's funny because my stereotype of the Dakotas is very much that they're these right wing oh, they are. Uh, places. But, but so why this? Why this, this is this is <clears throat> I think that public bank started with it was either nineteen thirteen or nineteen right after the depression. It was either huh. something like so it, it it's the it's the liberatory it you know it's it's that. It's like controlling their own destins destiny in that sense. It's not there's not a progressive necessarily a progressive position it's um they they you know the rationale for them i think you know i'd have to go back and read some of the early kind of documents but the rationale was very much about local ownership local control small government all of the, a lot of the same okay. ethos that we're, we talk about in terms of the right uh-huh. but and that also meant controlling the money supply, their local right. money supply. Absolutely. So it was a populist kind of was, moment. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And populism has both a left and a right and wing a, absolutely. Um, so we are aspect. So that, but, you know, you talk about um, uh, cooperative cities mm-hmm. and, and you talk about cooperative spaces. Mm-hmm. Um is this an example of a cooperative space or not so much? Uh, no, not, not, not the Dakotas. Uh, so What's a cooperative city? A what, cooperative what are the city. elements? Well, I, I, I'm looking in that model. I'm trying to understand how municipal governments are supporting worker-owned cooperatives. Okay. Right? Because this is a growing movement. Um, and most of it comes from the bottom up. It's a grassroots movement, right? right? People are in their community and saying, hey, we need a grocery store or, you know, addressing their needs, these unmet needs. And they do it collectively and they start a cooperative. It could be a food cooperative, which typically isn't a worker-owned cooperative, but that's a cooperative, right? So cooperative cities are this um, category of cities that really emerged since 2010, and it's these cities that I identified that are doing very intentionally uh, supporting worker cooperatives. They're passing legislation. They're putting 
dollars into their budget. They're, they're um, subsidizing some of the projects with land or buildings. They're, they're helping to improve kind of public awareness of the importance of cooperatives. They're investing in popular education. I mean, these are mm. things that we need for this movement to, to really thrive and to start more. Can you point to a city or yeah, more I can point than to many one? of them? So yeah. New York City is perhaps the the most put the most resources into it. Hmm. Um, Madison, Wisconsin, Minneapolis, Philadelphia, uh, Boston, uh, California. So Richmond, Oakland, and um, I don't know if Berkeley. I think it was Berkeley, Austin. Cleveland is a different model, but the Cleveland model is a top-down model. But nevertheless, the city was at the table brokering those relationships. So take one of those cities and and tell me what the municipality did to support the cooperatives. Mm. So it's probably best to take two. Okay. Right? And I, I say Cleveland was a top-down model in the sense that the director of economic development within the city and the mayor... Uh -huh reached to the um, the hospital the hospitals in Cleveland and some of the universities they came together and along with a national kind of uh, co-op developer you know we talked about one locally but there mm -hmm. were national cooperative developers to think through what community wealth building could look like in Cleveland how do we employ the 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 uh, you know this large group of the large population of folks that are unemployed or that were formerly incarcerated. What, what can we do? And so the, the co-op developer um, suggested starting a cooperative, a worker-owned cooperative, mm -hmm. and targeting an industry that they call an anchor institution industry. So if you're working with hospitals or universities, they're not leaving, right? And they decided to start um, a laundry facility. Hmm. This green laundry facility, so it uses less water and so on and so forth. And they did that. And they started a, co a, a, a laundry facility. Their primary customers are the hospitals. They do hmm. the sheets and so forth. Um, and I think at this point, they may have nearly 200 worker owners. Hmm. Within that, and Cleveland facility. subsidized this or seeded it. Oh, and so it. the city, yes, the city. So initially, the city was leading it um, for a set of reasons. I'm not fully clear. They stepped back, but they brought the folks to the table and put some money on the table there. Okay. Right? So it, the cities can bring legitimacy, even if you're not bringing a lot of dollars. Right. Right. So that's Cleveland. But again, that was a set of actors sitting at a table making those decisions, not kind of ground mm -hmm. up. I say the other end of the spectrum would be a New York in the sense that uh, early in Mayor de Blasio's uh, administration, there was a city council person, Rosenthal, Helen Rosenthal, and she proposed this idea of putting city dollars into cooperatives. And the mayor went for it. They started with $1.7 million. And within five years, each year they increased. And so I think the last year it was like three point something million dollars. Mm. And their strategy was to put resources into the ecosystem, um, the co-op lawyers, the, the co-op developers. Mm. Um, what else did they fund? Some advocacy organizations that focus on worker-owned worker cooperatives. Okay. Some of the folks that do the education and training. 
Um, and by putting money in those entities, they could help start more cooperatives. I see. The number varies in terms of how many started, but there, you know, it varies from 100 to 300. But uh, you know, the, many started. <laughs> many okay. started. There were a few there before. There, there are far more now within the last five years. So the city did a lot. It, it's not just the dollar, though, right? It's it's also the 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 narrative around the and the legitimacy that the city offers, um, and it's the education, the popular education that's necessary, public awareness, because folks are not familiar with that. Popular education that's close to my heart. Yes, and it that's, is. Um, <laughs> that that is a, f a form of organizing. It's a yes. form of pedagogy. Um, a city you didn't mention, but one that I have a vague sense it belongs there is Jackson, Mississippi. Yeah. And, the, and the history of Jackson mm -hmm. that I knew, and I don't know where Jackson is now, but you probably do, but I remember the Republic of New Africa coming out of Detroit, going to Mississippi and buying land. Yeah. That must be somewhere in the mm -hmm. legacy of what's going on. Yes, and it is. It's... Uh, it, 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 with the typology I developed, it's not a cooperative city in the sense that the municipal government did not okay. start that or really invest in, in what's happening in Jackson. In Jackson, it is very much um, kind of a grassroots movement. Okay. Right. And so that's my new body of work. I'm studying the the, the grassroots, or what I'm now calling real black utopias. Uh, How they are situated, what the ideology and the architecture of those formations are. And Jackson is perhaps the best example that we have in the United States, um, because because of what you mentioned i mean it, this is this is the manifestation of a legacy that that you know slowly but with certainty <laughs> got located in place and it's actually now kind of emerged as uh, and doing the work that it envisioned and so they have a land strategy they they starting a supermarket um, they have a, a production arm, 3D printing. And stuff. There's a number of things that they're putting together that fall under Cooperation Jackson as mm -hmm. an entity that all align with the, the um, kind of a black liberatory. And, and not just black liberatory, it's also, I think they define themselves as like eco-socialism. I see. Right? Uh -huh. Yeah. Well, I go back, I mean, for me, the deep history includes... Um, the history of the Communist Party and the Black Nation in the South, um, mm. which was a concept that moved me when I was 20 years old, and and um, I've thought a lot about. But the the experience of the Republic of New Africa, mm -hmm. I mean, I could, in in my own mind, I could imagine the Black Belt in the South as a not just a land base, but almost a seceding, mm. uh, you know, creating its own country, and then. I began to imagine, you know, the Southwest breaking off. I mean, the Southwest was ceded by the United States as it, you know, in a war with Mexico. But what would it mean if these the empire began to break up in those yeah. ways? And and so that history leads toward Jackson, this idea that we need land, we need um, a land base, uh, and we need cities too, but, mm -hmm. but both. No, absolutely. And I think, it, you know, so with, this is, Cooperation Jackson is situated in West Jackson, and they've acquired, you know, 50, 60 parcels of land there, and that's a big part of their strategy. I've heard you talk about maroon spaces. <laughs> Does this 
Am I, is this linked to that yeah, in some I ways? Yeah, I think all of the work is linked in that way, right? These are, these are spaces, um, again, I keep using the word liberation, but these are liberatory spaces, or at least the vision is a liberatory vision that gets located in place. And why are they called maroon spaces? Well, I think for that reason, they're, they're um, folks that recognize the, the violence of racial capitalism, and they're trying to to create some an, an alternative, essentially a, a new reality. It's 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 almost it's the it's the prefigurative politic, right? And so the maroons because of the history of the maroons. But it's um, not all of them use that language. But I think they would tip they would all align with the the principles, right? The principles that we would say are kind of. Yes, seeding from this kind of oppressive system and creating a system that's, um, you know, m built on solidarity uh, and and more supportive and more. I think where more possibilities can emerge, but there's also a contradiction because doing that within a capitalist system, yeah. right? We don't fully know if this if these models will work. If we are successful in in in, in um, abolishing capitalism, we right. don't know. But these are, be I think, the the reality is that people are okay with that contradiction because we like to believe that we're learning how to we're learning a form of democracy that we we aren't learning within this capitalist system. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I mean I think there's something important there, and I'd like to tease it out. So mm -hmm. there's a dialectic you call it a yeah. contradiction. But the dialectic is um, we could sit in our armchairs at the academy and say, once we have the end of capitalism, then we can have X, Y, and Z. But it never works like that. It's always about engaging in the struggle and learning to be new people with new Absolutely. agency and new possibilities Absolutely. by struggling. Absolutely. So when you say the history of Maroon, what, what explain that to people? Well, when, when we talk about marriage, we're talking about those who escaped, you know, enslavement, right? And they created new communities, new possibilities. Um, and they were separate from the, the reality of their condition, you know, where they escaped from. So brought from the continent of Africa, we can then think of, um, you know, enslaved folks, either folks that, that escaped that 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 system or were who were in that system and escaped or were able to escape before they were kind of mm -hmm. placed in that system. Um, but they formed full communities, right? Mm -hmm. Whether we're looking in Jamaica or we're thinking about Brazil or and and they created a system of of a security systems, right? They created a system for production and food and and housing and all of the things that we need for a society. Um, and, you know, I think these are models, well, this is somewhat of an empirical question still in terms of how many of the examples that I'm, I'm looking into, especially this summer, are, are, have share that ideology. We know Jackson right. does. Right. Um, and so I'm looking at a number of other places that, that have something that suggests they also do yeah. but that that's part of what i'm looking yeah at. and maybe it's something that spreads as the struggle spreads i yes. mean maybe it's something people don't know i mean when you mentioned brazil that's a place where i i knew something about maroon communities mm -hmm. and places where people mm -hmm. exactly people escaped 
to the mountains and built their own societies. Absolutely. And, and you kind of love those utopian ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm often reminded when I'm, you know, when I'm told that I'm a utopian. Um, yeah, to yeah. some extent, why not? You know, <laughs> why not? I mean, so you know, as I say, the the working title of this is "Real Black Utopias." And there so you real, are, right? They're real because we are trying to practice that in the here and now. These are not just, uh, you know, these fanciful ideas, right. but they're they're in practice. And I think it's important that people recognize that utopia is not mean perfection. Nope. We're still human beings. We're still all messed up, but at the same time. If we don't have a vision of what we're going toward, how do you know where you're going? Um, and and that vision will necessarily change. It's not exactly a roadmap, but, but you know it's interesting. So I think about Brazil. I just got back from um, John Brown's farm in upstate New York in the Adirondacks, and you may know this, but this just came to me as you were speaking that this may be an example of a maroon community. That is, um, Brown and his abolitionist group. Um, raised money and bought thousands of acres of land in the Adirondacks mm. and ceded it to black men in New York State because mm. New York State had passed a law that free black men could not vote unless they owned a certain amount mm. of property. So they created a thing. John Brown's farm is somewhere in Lake Placid, and the area right next to it is called Timbuktu, <laughs> and that was created in the 18. 18- 50s and 60s hmm. as a as a sounds to me like a maroon space i never thought of it that way but yeah. it sounds that way it is that yeah. way that is yeah. that would i mean historically uh we can look at communities in, in oklahoma all over the country mm. right after emancipation yeah. right where where there was there were no other options but create your own right and so this is an what you've just described is is a is a, um, a scenario whereby the the land was given and you know they're they're, they're able to create a community but I'm looking at the contemporary models I see, that, yeah. that may look very different, but there's some there's some connection to this right. this this legacy. And certainly the history you say the history of Maroon that there's something strong to draw on oh, in absolutely. that regard, yeah. um, something visionary. Mm-hmm. You know, you talk about cooperative cities. I've also heard you speak about punitive cities, <laughs> and the, and you hold those in contrast, right? Mm. What's a punitive city? Is Chicago a punitive city? Yes, I think all cities are punitive cities, mm-hmm. unfortunately. And yeah. and what does that mean to you? So it's it's the way in which um, the poor are. It's typically poor folks in cities are. Um, the way in which the city cities are. Build generating revenue um, and being particularly punitive f- for poor people, right? And so I look at examples that uh, I'm less connected to the particular policy. Unfortunately, we can point to any policy right. that's and it's racialized, right? Whether we're talking about school closing mm-hmm. or we're talking about parking tickets, mm. and you know, for me, it's the notion that cities generate revenue. Uh, both through through different types of taxes. Some are taxes on our property, but uh, others are taxes on some infraction. And those are regressive taxes, mm-hmm. right? And that, that regressivity is borne by typically poor, I mean, the regressivity is borne by poor people, and poor people are typically black and brown people in this city. Mm-hmm. So a punitive city or cities that, that perpetuate that 
um, and build policy around that. And then we come to understand that as, as legitimate. <laughs> the, you know, the residents of the places think that's a legitimate action. Yeah, I mean, what could be more neutral than a parking ticket or a um, red light camera? Right. But you study these things, right? I you do. have data about these I, things. I do, indeed. So tell us. So I studied uh, the with my colleague, Nebu Tillahun. Um, we studied the red light cameras and speeding cameras because of the whole push toward automation. And we know from other studies that, that uh, especially in Chicago, uh, that there was a the disparate impact of ticketing, right? So officers or state agents essentially disproportionately ticket in black and brown areas, which also happen to be low-income areas. But as you said, you know, folks think that they're, that these that these cameras are neutral. And so we got data for, five, I think it was about four or five years at the ticket level. So we had millions of record, records. And then we mapped it to census tracts. And so we can identify you know, the socioeconomic composition of the areas. And we did a couple of things. We looked at the distribution of tickets. We looked at where cameras are placed. Uh -huh. And we looked at the economic burden of, of the ticketing, as well as the safety impacts. Mm -hmm. Um, and in terms of distribution of cameras, people assume right away, oh, yes, there are more cameras in black and brown neighborhoods. And actually, there aren't huh. in Chicago. They're no. not. Huh. They're about equal, north side and kind of south side and, and west side. But when you probe, when you look further into that, you then identify certain cameras that are given 10,000 tickets and other cameras that are giving a few. And you then still think, oh, well, that's the agency of the individual. Well, no. When you then look at where those cameras are placed, so many of the, the high ticketing cameras are placed um, approximate to 300 feet, 350 feet of a freeway. Mm. So those particular cameras are probably not improving safety as much as we would hope, but I, I can't say for certain, but they are ticketing at a ridiculous rate. Mm -hmm. A disproportionate number of those types of cameras, the freeway cameras, are in black neighborhoods. I see. Uh-huh. And people generally across the city, you get more people get tickets within two miles of their home. So if you have a disproportionate number of the cameras that are proximate to freeways and most people getting those tickets are, are kind of within a three mile, two or three mile radius, well, it's going to capture a lot of black folks. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. It's and, amazing, though, how policy like this, which sounds neutral, mm -hmm. and I think of this in terms of educational policy all the time. It, it, it forces people to, um, to kind of think that it's my individual problem. Yes. I made an individual mistake. The proof is in my test score or the proof is in me getting this ticket. But actually, there's a structure underneath it that's, that's hard to see, yeah. hard to find. And that's part of what your work that's is doing. That's exactly what we're trying it, to do. Is looking at kind of neutral sounding um, policy and asking what is the racial social justice lens on this. Yeah, that, Is that, that correct? That's, it. that's absolutely correct. Okay. Um, I'm thinking of Buffalo, mm. where we had this um, horrible, horrible shooting over the weekend. And that's a, that must be a punitive city. Yes, we know we know it is. Um, and for a set of reasons, it's, it's, you know, what I saw juxtaposed to that shooting um, were, 
you know, the, the officers, the police officers, the state agents, one, how they handled this, 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 you know, racist and, and also how they acted during, um, the Floyd uprising and, and knocking down that senior who was protesting, mm -hmm. right? So those, I think when you look at those side by side, that, that's profound. But then when we just think about what happened in Buffalo and the intentionality of this, this kid coming from the rural area to kill, you know, black folks is, you know, we tend to focus on that individual, but he is part of a community. He's part of a, a superstructure that, that is about white supremacy. He, he said as much in his understanding of this theory, right, that he, he buys into. What's astonishing to me, I mean, yes, there's an ecosystem. Let's go even further back. Why is there a black community? Mm. Why, why, why does Buffalo have an east side? And yep. why does Chicago have a south side and a west side? So you can't pretend that this is kind of a natural evolution. This wow. was created, and it was created through policy and politics, Absolutely. right? And then this young person um, does research and finds the Topps supermarket. And I think that's interesting because you you mentioned 20 minutes ago um, people fighting to create maroon spaces or you know their own self-determined institutions. Mm -hmm. My understanding is that this supermarket was the result of community struggle because mm. it was a food desert. Mm -hmm. And whereas 20 miles from there, if one supermarket shut down, there's another supermarket. Yep. This is it. This yep. is the community center. This is the food center. This is a place where people meet. And this killer researched all that mm -hmm. and targeted it mm -hmm. specifically. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, I think, I mean, you said uh, food desert. It, it is indeed food apartheid. Right. Right. Because a desert is a naturally occurring thing. And as you said, this was not natural. Nothing occurring. natural Nothing about Nothing natural it. about the way in which our cities and our neighborhoods are structured. Um, they're high, highly racialized and, and intentionally so. So it wasn't difficult for this killer to, to identify, right? There are not so many options. You will either go to a religious institution or something like that. And we, we know that's exactly what they, yeah, this they've had, done. This. Uh, yeah, I was listening to uh, Professor Henry Lewis Taylor mm -hmm. talking about the community. And he was saying that Tops functioned almost like a church in the mm. social sense, oh, interesting. Um, because he lives, you know, within, you know, throwing distance of the supermarket, and he said it's very much a center, and that the killer had researched it and determined that. So, mm -hmm. the other thing that he said, I mean, I, what I'm thinking about is not just kind of the individual act of evil, but the ecosystem that allows it, and that, as you said, is white supremacy, but it's also embedded so deeply in history and culture and economic condition that it's hard to, you know, to tease anything out. He said explicitly, this is a, I'm a partisan actor in a civil war. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's, that phrase struck me very hard mm -hmm. because, because I often think we are in a civil war and mm -hmm. there are all these things happening, uh, on one side and things happening on the other side, but I think we we miss a lot when we don't see it for what it is. And this was a, a you know, this was an attack meant to intimidate in the same way that a lynching 
Absolutely. A public lynching it's, would. It, it, exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and it is doing that. I think people yeah. are, are thinking differently about congregating and going, you know, in public spaces. Black Absolutely. So it, it, it is indeed doing that. Um, thinking of your work, thinking of the work you do with the Social Justice Institute, mm -hmm. what do you think are the main takeaways that we need to focus on in terms of movement building? I mean, for me... You know, it's funny. People often say, use the phrase, this is an historic moment. And I always say every moment's <laughs> historic uh, once it's passed. Um, but but every moment of my adult life, I've tried to step back and say, what what is this political moment and what are the demands for movement builders, for movement makers? Mm -hmm. How do you think about movement making in this period? Um. So through this social justice initiative, I mean, that is the question that we've been grappling with um, uh, through this initiative, this portal project initiative, bringing organizers and activists and academics and artists together to really think through that question. And um, we've done that over the last year. And I think where we've settled at the moment is, one, we, we need to do more, but um, when we look at the moment, we look at the moment in which we're in and we look at the historically uh, the trajectory of movements, one thing that has come to the surface is this understanding that we things are fragmented currently. There's a lot, as you said, things happening over here, things happening over there, um, and there's not clear understanding of what's happening. So there need, in some ways, there needs to be more coherence. But it's not that there needs to be kind of a monolithic, um, you know, movement, but rather an understanding of some would call it like our linked fate. Uh, and the movements currently are, I guess I would say it this way, um, in terms of building a base. Right. We have some big identified kind of movements, whether we're talking about climate justice or the movement for black lives and so forth. But the basis we're trying to we haven't fully reached the communities that that we say we're serving. Right. And, and that is a problem that came up again and again, mm. that the base building work. Um, the door knocking work, community the work organizing. That, that, yeah. Yes, that organizing, and these are organizers saying that right. that is something that has been particularly challenging. Um, and but in terms of uh, you know momentum and 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 uh, I think there you know just two years ago we had 20, 20 million people in the streets it around John amazing. Floyd. That's yes. amazing. Yeah. But then how how do we leverage that? How do we kind of capture that? Right. And we didn't have a strategy. For, for doing that. I think we couldn't have fully anticipated it, but we, we, we didn't have a ready strategy for um, continuing that momentum, right. right? We didn't build the infrastructure for onboarding those who are eager or and for keeping that level of passion and interest uh, in, in, in changing the system. We, 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 we didn't, it dissipated, right? Why and do you think that is? Why? Is it because we just didn't anticipate it or we didn't have the capacity or yes both yes of and those yes and, i think both yeah. I, don't, I mean we couldn't have been, well we could have anticipated in that we 
you know, the, the state is killing us constantly every right. day, right? right? So you would think. But we don't have the capacity, it seems, in, in many ways. We have a lot of intellectual capacity. I don't think, I think to build that kind of infrastructure, you really have to have a, a fairly robust base. And I don't mean that in terms of the numbers, because I don't think you need, mm -hmm. you know, the majority of folks. Right. You, you need a, a, a certain number, whatever that right. magic number is, of committed folks that are um, able to reach their networks as well, right? Right. Uh, and and you know be poised to act when necessary. Right. You know, I for me, movement building. Uh, for, first of all, no no substantive change has ever happened for, toward justice in this country without fire from below. So I know that that's our job. I mean, one of the things that worries me about the current moment, and tell me what you think of this, is that is that what is always ready to co-opt us is the idea that the way you participate politically is in the legitimate electoral political process. I'm not, I'm not making the case that we should not vote or should not participate. We should. But I have, the, have had the strongest feeling my whole life that if you get caught up in that mechanism, you're doomed because it's a mistake to think Franklin Roosevelt passed this legislation or Lyndon Johnson did this. In reality, it was fire from below that did those things, and an effective politician was there to, to take it forward, but yep. and to co-opt it both. Um, so I, I worry that a lot of the energy from Black Lives Matter went right into electoral who strategy. are we going to elect, and the, and the thing that I find toxic in the electoral strategies, is. Everybody, uh, the squad, everybody seems to measure how successful we are by how much money we raise. I think that is really uh, anemic and weird when we're talking about democracy. And then I want to go back to the workers' co-ops and say that's real democracy. You know? Yeah, yeah. Those are different types of. Well, one is democracy. The other is American capitalism yeah. within a political frame. Right. right. Um, and unfortunately, that that is the game, right? You, you can't be outside the game no. and play the game. So you you recognize that you have to raise resources, and so unfortunately, our narratives are informed by that. But I fully agree that an elect we an electoral strategy is necessary, but it's not sufficient, and nor should it be what leads a movement. That that. That's just exactly. a strategy, one strategy, just right. to, to reduce harm. It's a harm reduction measure. And I think we're not sophisticated in this country so that we, when we do enter electoral politics, we should be asking ourselves, how will this build the movement? And then win, lose, or draw, you have a lesson to, to learn. Mm. But I feel like we, and I hear it all the time, so when, when I hear people who are disappointed in Ilhan Omar or disappointed in AOC... Okay, but then you invested too much in thinking they were going to do mm. what you have to do. Mm. I mean, I'm not saying they're beyond criticism at mm -hmm. all. No, I understand. But but I but I feel like we buy into the same mythology that you elect the right person, that person will solve it for you. I don't know, Bill. I think I would say it's slightly different uh, in the sense that you elect someone because you hope that they're going to play the inside game that you recognizing right. there's an inside game and there's an outside absolutely game. and and so the disappointment comes when you're playing the outside game and you're doing the work you, you at least you believe you are uh that's necessary but then 
what's happening on the inside is not aligning. So at least personally, that's where I I, I, I become disappointed. Well, look at the great disappointment with with Obama. I oh, feel like I'm the only person on the left who was not disappointed. Right, that was, Why? Well, maybe you too. But I, I never thought that he was a leftist. He, he, he wasn't. He said exactly he who said he was. He yeah, yeah, he said he wasn't. But if you invest so much that he will be the one who takes us over the to the promised land, then you've invested too yeah, much. That, yes, so I, I'm not, I, I don't disagree that we should hold people accountable, but I think that it's a, we let ourselves off the hook hmm. when we say, if Ilhan Omar would have done it, uh, Omar would have done it, we'd be fine. When actually we have to continue to build the mass movement. We, right. we can't, we never can shrug that off. Absolutely. But so I think of it as walking toward fundamental change or walking towards socialism on two legs. One leg is the mobilization of communities, workplaces, houses of worship, neighborhoods. And the other leg is real poli legitimate politics. Mm -hmm. But I think our job is so much on that first leg. And I think mm. we, we let ourselves down and then we, we want to cast blame somewhere else. To me, movement building has to involve mass mobilization. It has to involve changing the narrative. So when we, we can see a couple of good examples from recently. I mean, I mean, Bernie Sanders, for all of his mistakes and flaws, he did change the narrative around health care. Hmm. We, we were caught in a frame, Obamacare or predatory capitalist medical care. He introduced the idea of health care as a human right. Hmm. That's a different conversation. It's not like we've won that, mm -hmm. but at least we're in a different space around the narrative and around um, the framing of the narrative. I think we have to spend more time thinking about that as well and all the issues we care mm -hmm. about in all yeah. the issues. I mean, I think that it's, it's so fraught, but I agree. A narr the narrative is a huge component, but shaping that narrative becomes challenging because the media is controlled by the corporate interests and so forth. Did, did um, you know Kevin Kumashiro when he was at UIC? No. No, you came after yes. Kevin left. Uh, Kevin wrote a wonderful book called Surrendered, and it's about how progressives give up before they've won. Mm -hmm. um, when actually they have the stronger moral argument, the stronger political argument, but they back up. And one example that, I mean, he gives many, many examples of of buying into a frame that's wrong. But one example he gives contemporarily is uh, when people are arguing for the right to an abortion and they begin to say, well, it should at least be allowed for rape and incest. And you're like, wait, you mean you're conceding that then the other stuff, a woman doesn't have a right to her body, doesn't have a right to her bodily integrity? And, and it's an example of retreating when you ought to be advancing. Yes. The frame is not which abortions make. It's like, it's like tax relief. Right. You know, tax relief. As soon as you say, how much would you like to have tax relief? Forty percent, twenty percent. That's not the way I want to talk about. It. I want right. to talk about what we can do with our collective resources. That's sure. a different. So I think Kevin's very smart about this thing about where do we give up before we've begun. Yeah, I think, but we also have to kind of interrogate the we. Um, oh, absolutely. Right? Because I don't think those are typically the what I who I call the progressives making the that that decision. Mm -hmm. perhaps to others, but you know, those are the those are folks that are 
seeking reform. Those are the reformists, not the non-reformist reformists, <laughs> right? right? Um, but I would agree. We do. We we the the we, especially when folks are talking about electoral politics, they 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 use the term you know we as Democrats. It's like yeah. that's not a we. That's no, not I a agree. coherent group. No, you're exactly <laughs> right. Nothing, it's right? A, and we don't expect anything but fragmentation there. Absolutely, but in a way, I think what Kumashiro would argue is that. Those of us who are progressive, who have a vision, have to exercise our imaginations more rigorously and not get trapped in the frame that's being uh, offered to us. So when I listen to Ronaldo Hudson, our our mutual comrade and (laughs) and pal, uh, and he says, um, no, it's not that the people who committed nonviolent crimes are fully human. Everyone's fully human. And I don't want that distinction in your prison reform, the violent, the nonviolent. I want everyone treated like a human being, right? Yes. And that's a, another example where the liberals certainly and the liberal wing of the Democratic Party concedes too much mm-hmm. when we talk about this. Oh, yeah. And then I heard your mayor the other day. Why did I call her your mayor? <laughs> so mean. Um, but she was talking again about violence and talking about we're going to devote more police resources into the most violent communities. What does she mean when she says that? What is she... Who is she pointing to? No, she's pointing to the black neighborhoods on the south side. I mean, and that's obvious. It's obvious to you and me, yeah. for sure. Yeah, uh, and and this and it's a very narrow conception of violence. Violence Absolutely. that happens in the home. There's no support for. They're not right. thinking of that. The violence, you know, whether it's domestic violence or other types of capitalist violence, for sure. But it's 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 in her. I would imagine she's thinking about what it means to protect. The, the elite protect capital, right? right. And, and, and any kind of encroachment from the South Side right. <laughs> on that or on the image of the city, all of those things play together, right? right? The narrative around what is Chicago. Right. And if the first thing that people think about is violence, then she's trying to change that, right? right? right. Or if something happens in certain areas that, that, that reach media and, and shift that. Um, yeah, so that's, that's, that's a problem by far. But I will say... And this is not to give any accolades to the mayor, but we were talking about the solidarity economy and worker-owned cooperatives, and the, Chicago was not one of my cooperative cities, right? Because right? the city wasn't doing anything. But recently, we have a we have some folks on the inside who are playing the game correctly, and they were able to leverage fifteen million dollars from um, the federal recovery money, uh-huh. and they're putting it. They've put it into a pot for building cooperatives, community land trusts, housing cooperatives, worker cooperatives, and so forth. Um, and they put together an advisory committee, of which I'm sitting on, and, and, and a bunch of others. There's about 15 or 18 of us to do this work on the south side and west side. So it comes out of the mayor's office. I'm not giving her credit because I think it's um, it got into the mayor's budget but it was introduced by community and then um, shepherded through by our inside ally. But that's interesting. I, 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 I've thought about this a lot because I've done it myself with one foot inside, mm. um, either an administration or a system, but always never wanting to let go of the foot that's outside. Oh, yeah. um, how do you do both? You do both. Yeah, you, you've, I, you've been an insider mm. in either policy forums or government projects and at the same time an outsider yeah no i I mean i think that's that's perhaps one of the benefits of of academia right where 
I'm inside insofar as I'm allowed to say what I feel uh, in terms of and in, in, in grounded in evidence and so forth. But I don't work for the administrations, right? right? I I do the work that I, I think is important for my community. And I can show what I think works, especially around cooperatives, is that I studied 12 cities. And then other cities brought me in to say and asked, why aren't we on the list? Right? right? What can right. we be doing? And then that gives me an entree. Nice. What can Chicago do? Well, we can put this money in this way and we can build this infrastructure here and so forth. Um, and so if that's considered an inside, you know, a foot on the inside, yeah. Because that—that's the role. Like, I think we all have role to play, and my position at the university gives me access to a set of resources. And this is, this is how I, you know, I, I use it. But how do you? How do you? Um, how do you work within uh, an administration or a system or a project, and at the same time maintain your vision, your integrity? Mm. How, who do you look to? Who? Who do you? Who do you ally with in order to keep that tension alive? Well, I still do my community organizing work. Yeah, and um, and it just so happens things are aligning currently in that we have the partners for, partners in abolition, transformation, healing, and solidarity. Right, this is a a, a a collective that was funded by the Woods Fund, a movement building collective, and we are bringing this framework, which I didn't mention before, this fight-build framework in Chicago. Fight meaning we have to constantly fight the various systems of oppression, right? And we have to constantly um, hold our values of as abolitionists. We have to constantly lead with the, the most marginalized, right? Center the most marginalized. But we also have to build things. So mm. we're really good at fighting, I th mm. and especially in Chicago, man. Chicagoans mm -hmm. will fight. But we then don't have a build strategy. So Solidarity Economy is all about building. Okay. So we got a, a grant, essentially, to, to, to bring together 11 orgs that are, some are doing fight, some are doing build. And we've created something new. So I keep, I feel that I, I stay connected by doing that work mm -hmm. right because i'm working with organizers and working in community i'm actually doing the work we're building a set of cooperatives in chicago and um yeah and that allows me so then when i sit on that board i can think hmm where do we need to place this money and i'm not the only there are a bunch of i'm the only academic on that board okay um they're all community folks okay. pretty much but some are kind of the the grass tops but nevertheless we're we're in conversation outside of those meetings about, okay, right. how do we need to move this? And that. I think it's a really interesting dilemma and problem because you do want to be on that board and you do want to be in those meetings because you can impact them. But we've lived long enough that we've seen a lot of people with the best aspirations go in and find that the the material conditions changed them more than they changed the material yes, conditions. Yes, especially if you're going to work for City. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's yeah, that's not my job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah my labor, I I sell my labor to UIC. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> right, labor, not the right. City, so, let me ask you one big question to end, and that is, um, we call this under the tree, drawing on the Black Freedom Movement in the South for an, for a metaphor, but we it is a seminar on freedom, mm. and when you think about freedom and your own freedom dreams, um, where, where does that take you? That's a really good question. Um, no, interestingly, I, I perhaps in a conventional way, I'm not the, a dreamer in the sense of 
just thinking kind of of this fanciful idea of what freedom is. I'm far more of a pragmatist in the sense that I think there are a set of practices and actions and strategies that that we need to implement, uh, you know, in communities across the country. And my so the vision that comes to mind is this like confederated vision of doing things locally and connecting, mm -hmm. right? And you're connecting, whether you're connecting to Chicago's connecting to Jackson, connecting to Brooklyn, that's connecting to Oakland, that's connecting to Austin, right? We're connecting, we're, we're, right. we're not just connecting in terms of relationally and, and uh, uh, you know, socially, but we are, some are producing some goods and others are producing other goods and we're creating, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not opposed to markets, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, yeah. But markets have been around. I'm opposed to the extraction. Yeah, but but the fact that we can trade with each other and 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 uh, work with our kind of comparative advantage, I think that is a beautiful model. A model in which we're 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 um, you know thinking about land. We're we're very intentional about labor and conditions of work. Um, we're we're taking over corporations and and uh, so that the workers are the owners of these spaces. Um, it doesn't have to be a small entity. It can be a, any large. It can be an auto production facility, mm -hmm. right? It doesn't. It's it's the size and so for me, the freedom is the freedom to both to work and live, to, to have that, you know, self-determination um, and, 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 and that get located in space and so that we get to control our environments. And yeah. It's interesting because you, you came to a vision in a way, but what I heard you saying is that the freedom is in the work. I mean, you mm -hmm. immediately went mm -hmm. to the work itself. Yeah. And what I find both important and in some sense freedom is a paradox because it's not a... It's not an end point, not I don't end. think. Yeah. Um, and I remember two things come to my mind. One is that a, a, a fighter in the French resistance, a communist named René Char, was interviewed after the war, and he said, it was in the resistance that I found freedom. <laughs> and he said it was when we were in that basement <laughs> and the Nazis were marching above us and I felt absolutely free because I was fighting, mm. and and I thought that was great. I don't know if you've seen Stanley mm. Nelson's film on the uh, Black Panther Party, the Vanguard of the Revolution. Yeah, yeah. There's that one moment where these two guys who survived the L.A. shootout are talking to Nelson, and one of them is describing right before he's captured a standoff of several hours where they were shooting out and the police were shooting in, and he said. For those few hours, I felt like a free Negro. Hmm. That was the phrase he used. And I thought, boom. Wow. You know, because he wasn't free in, in some conventional sense of individual liberty or something. No. But he felt free because he had named the obstacle to his freedom. And he was doing something about and he's it. doing something about and, it. And that's what I think I heard you say. Yeah, I heard no, you that's say, absolutely It's it. the work itself that makes you feel free. It's not... The end point, who, who the hell knows what that is? Yeah, I don't know. You know? Yeah, I, I don't know what the end point is, but it, indeed it is a process. And I hope it doesn't have to be, I mean, it may be a violent process, but I think the freedom that I feel in building with yeah. people um, is important. The building thing is important. I would just make a little distinction around the violence because I, I you know, partly because it's me, but partly, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> partly uh, I, I, I think that we sometimes make too hard a line 
between violence and nonviolence rather than between action and passivity. Mm. I mean, to me, mm. to say Martin Luther King was nonviolent misses the point. Oh, My yeah. mother was nonviolent in some sense. She sat on her couch. You yeah. know, that's not the same. Yeah, and so, so we have to be pushing this idea that, and, and I often think, you know, people find it too easy to uh, admire um, Frederick Douglass, for example, and forget Harriet Tubman with that inconvenient pistol in her pocket. You yeah, know? No, no, I'm not. I'm, I, that is I know not my ethic at all. I just mean that in when I think about the standoff, that doesn't feel, I mean, maybe if I'm in it, it feels free. But just to sit and reflect oh, on I it know. doesn't, it feels, oh, I'm very anxious. About I know, it. I know. But I will be there because it's, you I know. Know, there will be a struggle. I mean, I think it is a struggle. And I think that no one knows what forms it will take. But I think that by doing the work you do and by doing the work that other activists do, um, we begin to define what the struggle ought to be. We have some choices in that, not absolute choice, but we have some choices. Mm -hmm. Anyway, it's been such a great pleasure mm -hmm. for me to talk to you. Every time I'm in your presence, I feel smarter than I was before. <laughs> Honestly, you are a, a deep thinker and a, and a brilliant activist. I can't thank you enough for being with me. Oh, I appreciate the invitation. Thank you so much, Bill. Wow, I had a great time. Let's go to reports from the front row with Light Eileen. This is pages from one middle schooler's notebook. Most of my friends are girls. We all subscribe to every news app and newspaper we possibly can because it makes us feel safer than we would if we didn't. When we got the notification yesterday that the Supreme Court had opted to overturn Roe v. Wade, I immediately called my closest girlfriends, and we were really upset. Our feeling about it is that we don't want to grow up in this world anymore. We don't want to grow up in America if our rights are literally being snatched from our hands. We're all scared. You guys are scaring the younger generation. And we've been talking about it. We can't resent adults for what's happening. At least we can't resent all adults, but it's hard not to when we're being forced to grow up in a world that makes us feel unsafe and unworthy. Okay, folks, let's dive into the wreckage and swim as hard as we can in the direction of our dreams. Let's try to stay all the way human. Thanks to our friends at the Dazzling Podcast Ergo, who incidentally just dropped their 300th episode and they revisit some of their earlier ones and they interview folks who've been on their podcast, including me and interviewing a lot of other people. So you might want to check that out. Thanks also to my co-conspirator, Light Eileen, and to Jordan Allen for producing and engineering, and to Roxana Espos. Go forward, keep rising, and make your life an ethic of cooperation. With joy in my heart and freedom on my mind, until next time.